0: Let's open up our Bibles this morning to the book of Luke, chapter 18. Subject for today's message is the rich young ruler. So that's something very familiar. We've all read stories about the rich young ruler. We're going to look at it in depth today. So we're in Luke 18, verses 18 to 27. Let's ask God's blessing. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, we come before you and pray that the Holy Spirit of God would be moving through his word today in the hearts of people. Lord, this is the very inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. And we we believe it. We know that you use it to sanctify your people and to convert the lost. And so, God, would you do that today? We've already prayed made, and, and sang what what's dead make it come to life and Lord would you do that through the Word of God the power of the word today in Jesus name Amen All right, Luke 18 we're gonna start reading a verse 18 a ruler questioned him saying good teacher what shall I do to inherit eternal life and Jesus said to him why do you call me good no one is good except God alone you know the commandments Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, well, all these things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God! For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, Well then who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. We're introduced this morning to a real account. This is a true story of someone who came to Jesus, wanting to find eternal life, but sadly was turned away empty because he was not willing to meet the requirements that Jesus laid out for him to have eternal life. Notice in verse 18 that Luke says this was a ruler a ruler came up to question Jesus. What that probably means is that this was a synagogue ruler. A ruler of the synagogue. Now they didn't just put anybody as the ruler of the synagogue. He was kind of like the pastor. They would look for the man who could be an example to the rest of the people in the synagogue. This would be a man who was known for his morality, his keeping of the law, his devotion to the Jewish faith and to the Jewish scriptures. So this man was a cut above most other people that were in a local synagogue. Very moral, he was prominent in the community, he was influential, he was um, a God-honoring, a God-fearing man. He has all that going for him. But the problem is, we learn, is that there was something missing in his life. In fact, when Jesus told him, you know, keep, keep these commandments, he says, well, what do I still lack? He felt that there was a lack in his life. There was still a huge hole in there. There was something that was missing and he knew it. In spite of all his religiousness and all his law keeping and all his devotion, there was something wrong. Now, over in Matthew chapter 19, it says there that this was a young man. Luke says he's a ruler. Matthew in chapter 19 verses 20 and 22 says that he was a young man. Now that's all the more impressive to me because Well, in the the Jewish way of thinking, anyone under 40 years old can be considered a young man. So he's somewhere under 40, but he had made his mark in life already as a relatively young person. He's a ruler of a synagogue, he's prominent, influential, he's wealthy. And not only that, but Luke says in verse 23 that he was extremely rich. Not just rich, extremely rich. Both Matthew and Mark say he owned much property. So he was in the real estate business back in the first century. He owned lots of land. I don't know how many acres of land, but lots of it. And probably all the things that go with land, like cattle and oxen and sheep and camels and donkeys, probably servants and maybe several wives. We don't know. But this man was wealthy, rich, extremely rich. So he was living the life that everybody else dreamed about. You know, if he ever wanted something done, he snapped his fingers and a servant went and did it for him. He had all the food that he would want. He had a luxurious home to live in. Anything that could be had in that culture and in that day, he could have because he was extremely, extremely rich. But notice, in spite of all of that, he lacked something. He lacked something really, really important to him. And that something is identified at the very first verse, verse 18, and the very last verse of this section, verse 30. And that something is eternal life. Look at verse 18. Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 30, Jesus says, There are some people who will in the age to come inherit eternal life. So look at this phrase, eternal life, as sort of the bookends to this whole section. And sandwiched in between eternal life in verse 18 and eternal life in verse 30 is how does a person obtain it? That was the question here. How does a person get it? Now, let's be real clear about what the subject is here. Verse 18 says it's about eternal life, but if we keep reading, verse 24, Jesus' answer to him is how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter He doesn't say enter eternal life. He says to enter the kingdom of God. So in Jesus' mind, to obtain eternal life was the same thing as to enter the kingdom of God. He says the same thing in the next verse. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Do you see a theme? Back in verses 15 to 17, that was the theme back then. What kind of person can enter the kingdom of God? Luke is continuing to teach on that same theme throughout this chapter. So it's not only obtaining eternal life, it's also entering the kingdom, same thing. But it's not only that, but the disciples understood something else by it, verse 26. The disciples said, then who can be saved? To obtain eternal life is to be saved. To obtain obtain eternal life is to enter the kingdom. So that's what's at stake. In this passage, have you obtained eternal life, or is it still eluding you? Have you entered the kingdom, or are you still outside of the kingdom? Have you been saved, or are you still lost? Those are the questions that we're dealing with in this passage. Now let's talk about eternal life for a minute. What is it? (laughs) What's eternal life? It's not just endless eternal existence. It's not just endless ex- existence, because every person who's ever been brought into the world has eternal existence, either in heaven or hell, but all people will exist eternally. So that's not eternal life. Eternal life is not talking so much about the quantity of the life, but the quality of the life. The quality of life. What, what kind of life is this that this rich young ruler is asking Jesus about? What kind of life? It's the very life that God possesses. It's the life that only God has, and only God can give. Let me share that. Jesus talked about this in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Okay, this is eternal life. To know God and to know Jesus. To have a saving knowledge, a saving relationship with God. A connection, a vital union, you might say, with the living God. How about 1 John chapter 5? He sheds more light on it back there. 1 John 5 verse 11. He says, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is where? It's in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. So do you see now? Eternal life is not just something out there. Eternal life is in Jesus. And once a person gets vitally united to Jesus Christ, the life that Christ has now becomes theirs. They possess it. But it can't be had any other way than by a living connection or union or attachment to the Son of God. So that's what this life is all about. This morning as we work our way through this passage in Luke, I'm going I'm to do three things. First of all, we're going to look at what this man did right in, pr- in pursuing eternal life. Because he did do some things very right. Then we're going to look at what this man did wrong in pursuing eternal life. And then we're going to look at what this man needed in order to gain eternal life. So those three things. First of all, what did he do right? The first thing he did is he asked the right question. He comes up to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life was the thing that was on his mind and on his heart. He didn't come to Jesus and say, Good teacher, what must I do to have a better self-image? Or what must I do to have a better marriage? Or what must I do to be able to deal with this sickness that plagues me? Those things might be important on one realm or another, but the ultimate thing, the thing that is far more important than any other question we'll ever ask is, how do I get eternal life? We're all going to die and we're going to spend eternity in heaven or hell. How do I get this life, good teacher? He was asking the most important question. And, you know, it is very, very rare that you'll find people that have that question on their heart. I mean, I know from going out and talking to hundreds and hundreds of people what's on their mind. And it's not, how do I get eternal life? How can I get rich? How can I get more money? How can I get, over, get healed up? I don't like the sickness I'm going through. How can I have a better life right now? How few people are thinking about their soul and are anxious and alarmed about the condition of their soul because they know that they're under the wrath of God. That's almost non-existent out there. So whenever you find someone like this guy, you should be really happy. Wow! This guy's a prime prospect for conversion because he is thinking about his soul and what he's lacking in terms of the most important thing of all. So he's doing that right. Secondly, he came to the right source. He came to the right person. He could have gone to the Jewish rabbis to ask his question. He could have gone to the high priest to ask his question. He could have gone to the Greek philosophers of his day. So what do you think? How can I get eternal life? But he doesn't. He goes to the only person on the planet that possesses eternal life and can give it. (laughs) Out of the millions of people that were living at that time, he goes to the one person who's able to give eternal life. That's pretty good. Pretty good odds, wouldn't you say? So, he goes to the right source. And you know, even if someone does have a concern about their soul, and does want eternal life, the problem is they usually go to the wrong source to try to find the answers. They go on the internet and Google it. How do I find eternal life? You know, Or they go to some New Age book or pamphlet or video. Or they go to false religious systems. Or they go to the cults. How many go to Jesus? The only one that has eternal life and the only one that can give it. It's rare. Very rare. The third thing he did right is he came the right way. Now, it doesn't come out here in Luke, but if you turned over to Mark chapter 10, You'd read some interesting things that Luke doesn't include. Matthew doesn't include them either. It's in Mark chapter 10, verse 17. It says, As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him, and knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This guy ran up to Jesus. Now, in the culture of that day, Jewish men weren't in the habit of running places. It was not distinguished, and they were wearing these robes anyway, and you'd trip unless you cinched them up and, you know, tied the girdle around there. It just wasn't a a common thing for people in that culture to run places. This guy is eager to know the answer to his question. He sees Jesus setting out on a journey, and he, he doesn't want to miss him, so he runs up to him. He's eager. He wants the answer to his question. And then he kneels down. Now that's even more significant. He's in the dust, on his face, asking Jesus, Good teacher, what shall I do to have eternal life? He takes this humble position, this mean position. To kneel down was was the place, or even to sit, or to kneel was the place of a learner. So this guy's not an arrogant, proud man. This guy wants really to know the answer to his question. Now, he doesn't say, good teacher, what must we do to inherit eternal life? He puts it intensely personal. What must I do? And don't you know, for uh, the leader, the ruler of a synagogue, he, he would have a, a reputation to protect. He's supposed to be looked on as the most God-fearing man in the congregation. And here he's publicly exposing that, I don't have eternal life. Maybe everybody else thinks I do, but I don't. And good teacher, I need it. So he's taking this humble position of a man willing to spill his guts (laughs) in front of all these people, and he doesn't care what people think. He just needs the answer to this question. I find that really admirable. Even if a person had true soul concern and went the right way to the right source, do they come in the right way? Are they diligent? Are they earnest? Are they truly seeking, like this man did? Are they humble in their approach to God? Not many. So those are the things he did right. Now, what about the things he did wrong? Number one, he had an inadequate understanding of who Jesus was. It was an inadequate understanding. He comes and he says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And notice that Jesus doesn't answer his question directly. He asks him a question right back. Instead of answering his question, he says, Why do you call me good? There's no one good except God alone. Now why would Jesus take that little detour? It's got to be significant. He wouldn't do it if there was no reason behind him asking the question. And I think a lot of people get tripped up with a, a misunderstanding at this point because they think that he, Jesus is saying something like, well, why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone. In other words, I'm not God. Only God's good. You shouldn't be calling me good. You've got the wrong impression of who I am. Now, why would we say that can't be what Jesus meant? <laughs> because over and over he affirmed his deity to other people. He can't be undoing everything else he does through the rest, especially of the Gospel of John. Do you remember when Thomas said, my Lord and my God? Did Jesus say, no, 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 I'm not your Lord and your God. Don't talk like that. Don't. That's wrong. That's blasphemy. He didn't say that. He said, blessed are those who believe without seeing. They're blessed if they believe that I'm their Lord and their God. He affirmed his deity. Before Abraham was, I am Jehovah. He said, I and the Father are one. So in other places, Jesus very clearly expresses his deity. He's not undoing that in this place. I think what's happening here, he says, Why do you call me good? There's no one good except God alone. Do you know who I am? This could be a very flippant title that you're throwing out for me. Think about what you're saying. Good teacher. Do you know what that means? Do you know who you're dealing with here? <laughs> Do you know who you're encountering? Who, whose presence you're in the midst of right now? There's no one good but God alone. And you're right, I am good. Put those two together. I am the very Son of God. I have come from God, and I'm here in your midst to tell you how you can have eternal life. So he wants him to begin thinking about who Jesus is and, and to recover from this inadequate understanding You know, most people in the world today would say, yes, Jesus is a good teacher. Wouldn't they? Hindus believe that. Muslims believe that. The cults believe that. Everybody believes that. He's a great religious leader. They just don't believe that he's God in human flesh. And one of the things that you must understand if you are to inherit eternal life is who this Jesus is that you're dealing with. He's not Michael the archangel, as the Jehovah's Witnesses claim. He's not the spirit brother of Lucifer, as the Mormons proclaim. He's not just a man, a prophet, like the Muslims say. He's God. God creator. Almighty God become man. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. And the Word came down and dwelt among us. So the scripture's clear. Jesus is God among us, the second person of the Trinity. Now the second thing he did wrong is he had too high of an, uh, an opinion of himself. Because in verse 20, Jesus said, well, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. Interesting. Do you find it interesting that Jesus didn't speak to him about God's grace? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, don't you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? And don't you know he's gracious? Just say the sinner's prayer and you're in. You know, he didn't deal with him. And, And I think there's a lot to learn about evangelism from watching how Jesus dealt with souls. There's a lot that we can learn. And he, he did evangelism completely opposite <laughs> than most evangelistic methods that you see in the church today. I just think it's striking. He's the master teacher when it comes to dealing with souls. So he didn't talk to him about grace. He didn't talk to him about love. He didn't talk to him about mercy. He talked to him about law. And did you notice where all those commandments come from that Jesus mentioned? There's two tables to the law, the Ten Commandments. You've got the first table and the second table. The first table is our duty to God. The second table is our duty to man. Which table is he quoting from? The second one. That's right. He lists five commandments. The commandment about adultery, murder, stealing, bearing false witness, and honoring your parents, your father and your mother. So Jesus quotes from the second table of the law. And as he does that, This guy says, hey, I've done it all. I've kept all those commandments from my youth. I love how J.C. Ryle responds to this in his commentary. He says, an answer more full of darkness and self-ignorance, it is impossible to conceive. He who made it could have known nothing rightly, either about himself or God or God's law. (laughs) In other words, this guy was completely self-deceived into thinking that he had always kept God's commandments. He had too high of an opinion of himself. Oh sure, I've kept them all. This vaunted, exalted opinion of how well he had always kept God's law. So Jesus is going to have to drag this guy down. He's going to have to humble him if he's ever going to become a possessor of eternal life. In this proud, arrogant spirit, there's no way that he can ever be saved. And so Jesus deals with him, not with grace, but with law. And even law doesn't work with this guy. And I think this guy was sincere. I think he really believed that he'd always kept God's law, but he was sincerely mistaken. Another thing that was wrong is he had too low of an opinion of God's law. Too high an opinion of himself and too low an opinion of God's law. He thought that the law was something that was very possible for anyone to go out and achieve and keep as long as you just tried hard enough. He didn't understand the strictness and the spirituality of God's law. Spirituality. He didn't understand that the law didn't simply condemn adultery, but it also condemned lust. It didn't just condemn murder, it condemns anger without a cause. You see, there's a spiritual element of the law of God that deals with the heart, the thoughts, the motivations, and this man was thinking only on the exterior. It's kind of like the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3 where he says, Yeah, uh, I was blameless according to God's law. Well, if you look at his outward life, you say, Yeah, he's a pretty blameless guy. But he says in Romans chapter 7 that when he the commandment about not coveting came to him, it slew him and killed him because he saw the spirituality of the law, the, how it dealt with his desires, not just what he did on the outside. So he had too low of an opinion of God's law. He didn't, he didn't allow that law to come in and search his heart and his attitudes and his thoughts. Number four. He was unwilling to give up his riches. Look at verse 22 here. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you possess, distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus brought this guy to a crisis point. He said, you want eternal life? Okay. Give up everything you have. There's a crisis. He either has to do it and gain eternal life, or not do it and be excluded from eternal life. Jesus brought this guy to an impossible crisis in his life. You know evangelism should bring people to a crisis. It should bring them to a place where they feel, I I, I can't do it. That's what Jesus did here. So he's unsuccessful using the second table of the law, so he brings them to the first table of the law. The very first commandment is what? You shall have no other gods before me. What was this man's God? Is money. So Jesus, in order to expose the fact that he had a desperate need, exposes him to the first table, the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. He, he's saying, money has your heart. You are in its grip. If you are to follow me, you have to be freed from that. You have to be willing to let go of that, to follow me. And that's not all. You know, over in Matthew it says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's one of the the commandments that Jesus brought up. So, to love your neighbor is to love yourself is really to summarize the second table of the law. This guy really hadn't kept the second table, although he thought he did, because he wasn't loving his neighbor as himself. We find that because when Jesus says, okay, show that you love your neighbor as yourself, sell everything you have, give it away. Love those people that are poorer than you, that have need. He wouldn't do that. So, not only was money as God, and He'd broken the first commandment, but He didn't love His neighbor as Himself, and He'd broken the second table of the law. He, he stood condemned in the sight of God, even though He thought He was righteous and holy before He met Jesus. <laughs> but Jesus is doing heart surgery, isn't He? He's getting down into the soul. He's exposing the idols that are in His heart, so that He will look someplace else other than Himself. He'll look outside of himself to find salvation. And that's what Jesus is doing. Let me show you that passage over in Romans chapter 7. I just want to read to you one verse there, verse 9. This is Paul. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Okay. I was once alive apart from the law, what does that mean? He thought he was great. He thought that in and of himself he was fine with God because he was such a righteous person. He was alive. But when the commandment came, God's law came into his life, when that commandment came into his life with force and power, he says, sin became alive. I saw my sin. I really saw it. and. I died. I died to any hope of self-salvation. I died to any hope that I could justify myself by law-keeping. That w- went away. I was destroyed in the presence of God because I saw myself as undone. Isn't that what happened in Isaiah chapter 6? When Isaiah, yeah, Isaiah had this vision of God high and lifted up and exalted. The train of his robe filled the temple. He said, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. As soon as he saw God in his holiness, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. He says, I'm, I'm sinful. I'm undone. And then the, the angel brought to him this lip, this coal and touched his lips where he said he had been sinning. He knew he needed atonement. He needed to be purified from his unclean lips. That's what happens when the commandment comes. So... There is a place for bringing God's holy law and evangelism, not to save people, but to unsave them. <laughs> to get them to the point where they see they need to be saved. <clears throat> so that is exactly true. This man had an inadequate understanding of who Jesus was. He had too high of an opinion of himself. He had too low of an opinion of God's law. He was unwilling to give up his riches. And finally, and I think most importantly, he was unwilling to follow Christ. Most of the time when we read this story, we put all of the emphasis on selling his possessions and giving them to the poor. At least that's how I've always read this story. That's where the real emphasis lies. I I think that's a mistake. After having read this again and again and prayed about it, I think the real emphasis here is not sell all your possessions. It's come follow me. Think about that. Where is eternal life found? Jesus. Right? The the question is, how can I have eternal life? Follow me. Attach yourself to me. Believe in me. Unite yourself to me. If you'll do that, you'll have eternal life. Now, why did he tell him to sell his possessions then? If you can have it by following Jesus. Well, I I liken it to a little boy. Let's say a four or five-year-old little boy. And he's got his hands full of candy. It's just... After Halloween, he's got all this great candy. He's just M&Ms and lollipops. And this, this guy comes up to him and says, I've got a present for you today. It's some money. I've got 10 $100 bills. Here you go. And the little boy looks at the money and he looks at his candy. And he says, no way am I letting go of this candy. If I take that money, I'm going to have to turn loose of my candy. And you see, for the rich young ruler, Jesus was like the money. But he couldn't estimate the value of that money. He had no categories for estimating the worth, the beauty and glory of Christ. And so his hands are full of his own temporal riches. And in order to take Jesus, he had to let go. You can't have both at the same time. You have to have Jesus and turn loose of what's in your hand or hold on to what's in your hand. It's one or the other. Jesus says, come follow me. And you can't follow me unless you turn loose of all that stuff that you love and that you worship and as the idol in your life. It's impossible. you got to turn loose. See right here, repentance is what's being talked about. Turning loose of your riches is repentance. Come follow me. What's that? It's faith. It's the very same thing we preach today. Repentance and faith. The law is used to convict a person of sin, and then we urge them to turn loose of what they've got their hands full of and grab Jesus with those hands. So that's exactly what's happening here. This man was unwilling to follow Jesus Christ. Christ gave him a commandment, and Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the universe. Come, follow me. Turn loose of your possessions. And unless this man is willing to take that humble position of a servant, and unless he's willing to view Christ's word as law, and submit and surrender himself to the Lord Jesus Christ, he cannot be saved. And Jesus doesn't run after this guy and say, wait, 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 don't go away. I I really didn't mean it. You can still be a Christian and have your riches too. He didn't say that, does he? He says, it's me or your riches. Take your pick. It's me as your God or something else as your God. Take your pick. You cannot serve two masters. You serve one or the other. And in evangelism, we need to be telling people this. You can't keep your sin if you want to follow Jesus. Let me just tell you that up front. If you're living with your girlfriend, you're going to have to stop. Jesus won't let you do that if you are going to follow Him. We have to tell people that all the time when we go talking to them door to door. Because most of the people we meet are, are just living together. And it's an issue. Because if they're going to repent, they need to know, well, that's sin. Jesus won't allow you to go on living that way. Are you prepared? Are you like the man who counts up... Um, The king who counts up the people that he has in his army to see whether he can do battle against the other man—do you do you make preparation? Are are you are you really prepared to go all the way with this? I think we really should have people search their heart. How badly do you want eternal life? (coughs) Jesus didn't preach an easy believism gospel. You see that from this story? (laughs) There's nothing easy about how he dealt with souls. It was impossible. The way he dealt with souls. Absolutely impossible. Now, let's go to the third issue. What did this man need in order to gain eternal life? And this is crucial. Look at verse 24. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Well, how hard, Jesus? How hard do you really think it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. He explains it in the next verse. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, I've heard people say that means that there was this gate in Jerusalem called uh, the needle's eye or something like that. And a camel had a real hard time getting through this gate because it was so difficult. He had to get down on his knees and he had to take the pack off of its back. And with great difficulty, he could squeeze through the gate. The only problem is, No one has ever (laughs) been to substantiate that there was ever a gate called the Needle's Eye in Jerusalem. And even if they did, it would contradict the next verse, where Jesus says, with men it is impossible. It's not impossible for a camel to go through that gate that you've all heard about. It's possible, it's just hard. So Jesus, how hard is it for a rich man to get into heaven? It is so hard that there's nothing he can do to get into heaven. It is impossible. It's not just hard. He can't do it. He can't do it. In and of himself, it's impossible for that guy, that rich man, to get in heaven. Okay, Jesus, well, is that just rich people that it's impossible to get into heaven and be saved? No, because the next verse, he says the things that are impossible, not with rich people, with who? People. All people. Let that sink in all people the things that are impossible with people are possible with God now these people thought that the rich were highly favored by God that was the mentality of the Jewish culture if you have a lot of stuff that means God has blessed you that means that means you've obeyed his law because these are temporal blessings that God gives to those who are obedient so if they thought anybody was gonna get into heaven it would be the rich and here's the rich man he says it's impossible for him to get into heaven get into the kingdom. And they say, well then who can be saved? The other versions say they were greatly astonished. They were astonished by that answer. Well then who? <laughs> who can get into the kingdom? If that rich man can't, and he's extremely rich, he must be extremely blessed, he must be extremely obedient. If he can't do it, who can? No one. <laughs> Jesus said, nobody can do it. Now why is it impossible with people to enter the kingdom of God remember our analogy of the five-year-old boy it's impossible because that little boy cannot understand the value of those ten one hundred dollar bills he has no category for understanding wow I could get a million pieces of candy if I just took that money. he doesn't understand that all he understands is he likes candy and the people of the world the natural man his candy it's things that he can see and hear and feel and touch and smell because he, he does not have faith. It's the things that he can relate to with his five senses. It's things like money and power and prestige and pleasure and sex. All of those kinds of things are like his candy. But you bring him Jesus and he goes, I don't want that. I want this. Something's got to change within his heart to where he starts to see the beauty and value of Christ or he will never be saved. He'll never change in his candy for the $1,000 until he sees, Oh, the $1,000 is way better than this stupid candy. I want this. Something's got to happen where his eyes are opened, his heart is changed. The Bible calls that regeneration. It means to be born again. So instead of a little five-year-old boy, all of a sudden, you're a a, a teenager and you understand what that money can do for you. Let me show you some scripture that will help you see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Now, you understand what a natural man is. That's a man without the Holy Spirit. Paul says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised did you hear that word he cannot it's not that it's just hard for him to do he can't he cannot understand spiritual things because they're spiritually appraised now we understand what an appraiser is right if you have a home and you want to know what it's worth You call up the appraiser, he goes out to your house, he looks around, and then he looks on the internet and he sees how many other houses about your size are selling around here, how much are they being sold for, and he he puts a value to your home. Here it says, the things of the Spirit of God are spiritually appraised, they're spiritually valued. If you're a natural man, you don't value them. You don't see the value of them. But if you've been born again, you start to see. The eyes of your heart are open to see the beauty and the worth and the value of God and the things of God and the kingdom of God and salvation and everlasting life, and they become precious to you. Over in Peter it says, To you who believe, He is precious. 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 So that's what's got to happen. The natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness. So it's like a little boy saying, why do I want that green paper? Look at the candy I've got in my hands. Right? It's foolishness for me to give up all this good stuff for that paper. Who wants the paper? <laughs> okay, let's look at another one. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless you are born again, you cannot what? See, See. If he can't see the kingdom unless he's born again, what, is that, what does that tell us that he is right now? Blind. His eyes are closed. He can't see. That's why in Acts 16.14 it says, The Lord opened up the heart of Lydia to respond to the things spoken of by Paul. Her heart was closed. God had to open it up. He had to pry it open so the grace of God could flood in. There was something closed about her heart. There's something blinded about her eyes. This had to change or she would never be saved. Do you see this? Let's look at another one. I love this text. Second Corinthians chapter four. We're going to look at two verses here that really help us at this point. Second Corinthians four, verse four. Well, I'll start in verse three here. It says, "Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing." In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving? Now who's the God of this world? Satan. What has he done to the unbelievers? Blinded their minds. What is he trying to blind them to? So that they might not see something. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's what we're talking about when we talk about the value or the beauty or the worth of Jesus. It's his glory. Satan's going around blinding unbelievers to the glory of Christ. They don't see the glory. They see more glory in a dollar bill than they do in the face of Jesus. They can't see it. They're blinded to it. Their hearts are barred and closed. Is there any hope for mankind then? Look at verse 6. For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ in the face of Christ. He gives us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So Satan's doing his best to blind people to the glory of Christ. God comes along and he shines his light into hearts. This is a supernatural light in other words, he, he produces light in our soul to where we see. And not just see intellectually. A lot of people understand intellectually many different doctrines of the Bible. This is different. This is helping them to see the, the glory. Okay? <laughs> you got to get this part. It's, it's the beauty and, and magnificence of Jesus Christ. You see his preciousness to you. When that happens, it's a work of the Holy Spirit, regenerating a soul. And it's beautiful to watch, because a person becomes a brand new creature. (laughs) They are brand new on the inside. Just a few years ago, we were going door to door, we met a a Buddhist woman. And in a matter of about five or six weeks, God had made her a new creature. And you could see it all over her. She began to love the Word. She loved being with brothers and sisters. She didn't have any time or any use for that before, right? She was blinded to the glory of Christ. Now her eyes are open. That's what happens when a person is saved. So, to go back to the rich young ruler, what had to happen to this guy, if it was impossible with him to enter the kingdom, what had to happen? This, that we've been talking about. A supernatural work, a shining of God's light into his heart, and enabling of him to appraise Christ rightly and value him the way he is, that had to happen to him. One other passage before we leave this subject, and it's Romans 8, verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh, now that's just a description of a lost person. Those who are according to the flesh. That's... That's an unregenerate person. He sets his minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Do you hear that? This lost person, his mind is set on the flesh, and in that condition, it's not able to subject itself to God's law. It doesn't have the capacity. There is no ability in this lost person to do that. And then he says, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Lost people cannot please God until they are born again. It's like in Genesis 6-5, every thought of the imaginations of their heart was only evil continually. Now we say, well, that doesn't make any sense. I know lots of our neighbors, you know, we're good people. They mow their lawn. <laughs> they're not egging our house every You know, they're good people. They're, they're nice folks. God looks at things differently than we do. God is saying, are, are these lost people doing these good things out of love for me, out of faith in me, for my glory? No. None of the things they do are for those reasons. That in God's sight, they're evil. They're splendid sins. Look great to people, but not in the eyes of God. They can't please Him. They can't enter the kingdom on their own power. They are shut out. You see, we have to rightly estimate the damage that the fall did. I think we really don't get that. What happened when the, the fall took place? Destruction devastation. I mean, look around you. Look at the crime and the violence and the wars and the killing of people and just selfishness between people. Everybody has a selfish heart. Look, look at this world wasn't made to be like this. We live in a weird world. It's not the way God originally made it. It's been corrupted and defaced and fallen and it's polluted. The whole thing is crazy. If we truly understood the devastation that the fall brought into the world, we would get this. That's why it's impossible with people to enter the kingdom. They're helpless. Romans 5 tells us the lost person is helpless. Does this teaching of Jesus here in Luke 18, does that fit with the the popular conception of conversion in most churches? What I've heard, and, and this, I used to believe this as a young Christian, for about 12 years I believed that Jesus did everything He possibly could do to save everybody. Everything He could do. And now it's up to us. It's kind of like, God votes for you, the devil votes against you, you cast the deciding ballot. The power of conversion lies within the sinner. It lies within his free will. That was what I believed. I, I taught that. And slowly, I just started to see other scriptures that started to move me. It didn't happen all at once. It took a while. It took two, three years of just studying and thinking, and I found myself agreeing with all those texts we've been reading this morning. It's impossible with people. They can't appraise God. They can't see the kingdom. They're they're deaf to the voice of the Spirit. They're cut off. They're dead. All of those truths that we read constantly, they're really true. That's how desperate our condition actually is. Now let's draw out some application today. And I just want to talk about two things. Number one, what must a person do to gain eternal life according to Jesus Christ in this passage? Four things. Understand who Jesus is. You need to understand the Jesus of the Bible. Not a false Christ, the true Christ the Lord of glory. They've got to know that. Two, they've got to understand their own sin. That's why Jesus presses him and takes him to the law. He's got to see himself as a violator of God's law, as undone and sinful and condemned. Number three, he's got to surrender to Christ. If you remain adamantly opposed to Christ, but just want to sort of add him for fire insurance, it won't work. I don't want to go to hell, so, yeah, I'll accept Jesus. Well, you might as well not do anything at all. If, the, if you're going to remain in your opposition to and rebellion to Jesus, you're not a Christian. You haven't been converted. You See, when this regeneration thing happens, your heart changes. And it changes from a heart of rebellion to a heart of submission to Christ. And there's something that goes on in there that you desire to do the will of God. Remember the scripture we started off with this morning? It says that in Jesus' heart, He he desired to do the will of God. He delighted in it. That same heart, remember the life that's in Jesus is in you. The same heart that was in Jesus to delight in God's will comes in you. There's a transplant. His heart whew, comes inside. The life of Jesus comes inside. Oh, and, and now you begin to want to do the will of God. And then fourthly, follow Christ. Understand the Jesus of the Bible, understand your sin, surrender to Christ, and follow Christ. Repentance, that's surrender. Follow, that's faith. So, if you are not sure whether you possess eternal life, take heed to those four aspects. Okay? Do you know who the Jesus of the Bible is? Do you know you're a sinner? I was just talking to some children yesterday, asking them, do you guys know that you're sinners? It's important. You'll never be saved until you understand that. Three, have you ever been willing to surrender your life to Jesus? Just surrender. Put up the white flag. Hey, unconditional surrender. Number four, are you willing to follow? Become a follower of Jesus. Now, the second major area is this. How should we help other people gain eternal life? Let's take our cues from Jesus Christ this morning. This guy was a prime prospect. He already believed in God. He's not an atheist. He's not an agnostic. He believes in the scriptures. He believes in judgment. He is a moral man. He believes in doing good. He spent his life trying to obey God. And he even knows that he doesn't have eternal life. He comes to Jesus humbly and earnestly, falls on his face. He's on his knees, imploring him to give him this eternal life. And you say, if Jesus doesn't get this guy into the kingdom, he's a pretty bad evangelist. I mean, wow, Have you ever? has anyone ever done that to you, run up to you, knelt in the ground and said, please tell me how I can have eternal life? It's never happened my whole life. Jesus has the greatest opportunity I can imagine of getting this guy in the kingdom. And most of our churches, though, Jesus would flunk Evangelism 101. Because what would we tell a person like that? In in most evangelical churches, we would rush them into a decision as quick as we could. We would urge them to say the sinner's prayer. And then after they said this sinner's prayer, which isn't in the Bible, folks, we would pronounce them saved. And we would tell them, You're saved now because you said the sinner's prayer. And from now on, you should never doubt whether you're saved. You should write this in the back of your Bible. On this date, I said the sinner's prayer, and I became a Christian. Well, you might have, but you might not have. I've known lots and lots of people who said the sinner's prayer who were never regenerated. I've got a younger brother who did that. He died an atheist. Just because you say some prayer does not mean you're converted. This is one of the... (laughs) most horrible mistakes we make in the church today in our evangelism and and one of the worst things we do is we assure people as soon as they say the prayer that they're saved and they should never doubt it what does that do false assurance people are become self-deceived and it's our fault we're telling them that what should we do instead we should wait if you go back a couple hundred years and look at the the like George Whitfield Whitfield would say things like, several hundred were hopefully converted. They didn't pronounce people saved. They waited. And if they were saved, they would show it. How can you not show if you become a new creation? Right? So what we should do is preach the gospel, urge them to repent and believe it, and then wait to see if the Holy Spirit has done this work that we've been talking about today, this regenerating work. And if He has... It'll it will show itself. It'll show itself in repentance, conviction of sin, love for God, love for his word, love for other people. You just start to see it. So I I think it's much better to, to take our cues from Jesus than from popular televangelists or from the four spiritual laws or four steps to peace with Christ or evangelism explosion or any decisionistic method that we've come up with today. In fact, if you go back Oh, before about 1830, you didn't find any of that stuff. This is actually very modern. It's within the last 200 years. Charles Finney was one that promoted the beginnings of this decisionistic way of trying to get people into the kingdom, make a decision, and that's all that's necessary. Mm -hmm. Well, that goes back to your will, doesn't it? The will of man, the will of a fallen man, being able to enter the kingdom when Jesus said it's impossible. So we need to look for the work of the Holy Spirit. And when that work is done, we rejoice. And then we begin teaching them to observe everything that Jesus commanded. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for directing our attention this morning to this rich story of this young ruler who is extremely wealthy and, and the riches that we can glean from it. Thank you for that. I pray that you would help us to become wise and effective at leading people into a relationship with you and to take our cues from Jesus and to look for the work of your Spirit and to exhort them to immediate repentance and faith. So Lord, please have your way in this little church that we would truly be a group of disciples that do make other disciples. That it won't just be a slogan on a wall or a banner somewhere, but it would be the lifeblood of this church. That that's what we're about. That's how our heart beats for that. We want to obey you, Jesus, the Lord of the church. So give grace to this church, we pray. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen.